Welcome to the Bug Hunters Cafe. Have a seat anywhere. Thanks. Hi, Jason. Hi, Boyan. Who are we meeting with today? Uh, Moshe Zatka. Uh, they've been involved in open source uh, since 1995 and Python since 1998. Oh, right. I, I met them at a conference, I think. They're a core contributor, one of the founding members of the Python Software Foundation, right? Yeah. Co-founded uh, Twisted as well. Uh, they've been doing site reliability engineering and DevOps uh, since before those had names. Wow. Uh, yeah, maybe they can explain what the DevOps is. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't think anyone actually knows what DevOps is except DevOps. <laughs> Top secret knowledge somewhere. In any case, they'll be running uh, using Teleporter soon. Cool. Wait, Teleporter? We, we have a Teleporter? Sort of. It's a fax machine. Oh, uh, last I heard it was low on toner. Yon assured me it had enough for one job. That stuff's getting more and more expensive. What's it made of? Unicorn tears? It's a vigorous peach. Don't get your tail in a knot. Oh, here they are now. Uh, hi, Moshe. Hi, how's it going? Great, it's good to see you. Yep, yep, good to see you. I'm, I'm so glad uh, I found the transporter in the Computer History Museum so I can get here. Computer History Museum? Uh, where's where's that at? Yeah, that's that's in Mountain View. It's it's a really uh, great place. Uh, when um, this is over, we can all uh, go there and have so much fun. Well, I mean, I, I, I'd certainly be up for it, but do you mind if we take my um, my my ride? It's the coat closet in the corner. It, it doesn't, it's not stationary. Sure, that sounds good. <laughs> I'm a little I'm a little flighty about the the fax machine because I don't want to try and get back that way today for obvious reasons. Yeah, that, that sounds like it can get dicey. Yeah, I, I spent a week um, kind of faded, and that was not that was not fun. I had yeah. to find someone who could kind of darken me, and you know, Photoshop filters do not do great things to your complexion. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I bet they don't. You should, you should have used pillow clearly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, word of the wise, if you ever need to, you know, fix up your complexion, not in a photo, but in real life, use Python. It's Python's... Import anti-gravity while you're at it and, and fly. It's awesome. Uh, oh, hey, um, can I get you anything? Um, coffee's on Soft Terrific. They're the ones who sponsor these talks. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to stick with uh, uh, tea, ogre, hot. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go get that. Hey, uh, is that Margaret Hamilton over there? Officially, we know nothing. <laughs> because, like, she's awesome. Like, could, could I go talk to her for, for a minute? Um, one word. Paradox. Uh, okay, I, I would have really loved to talk to her about, like, the... Uh, about the uh, how the recovery code in Apollo 11 worked. That was such a great job. Yeah, I, I'm sure that, that that would be fascinating if that were Margaret Hamilton, but that's officially not Margaret Hamilton. <clears throat> okay, well, I, I, I guess I guess I made a mistake. Here you are. There's your Earl Grey. Mm. Good. So, you know, we were talking about it a moment ago. Um, while we are waiting for you, what exactly is DevOps? I think everyone's got their own idea of what it is, but everyone's afraid to ask because they don't want to look <laughs> like they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, um, I, I guess like like I guess the, the first thing I'd say is never be afraid to ask. Nobody knows what they're doing. Um, but then there's a reason why it's complicated because it's been overloaded a lot. 
and so it's very subtle. Um, so in the beginning, right, like what it started was like it wasn't a job description; it was a movement, which the idea is like to um, break silos apart. So to to understand like you know what what silos is talking about, right? Like if you have like the old model of like software development, you have the programmers working on code. And then they throw it over the fence to the operations people. The operations people try to run it, monitor it. Um, sometimes they, you know, when, when they see a problem, sometimes it's because they misinstalled or there's like a transient problem on the hardware. But on the other hand, sometimes there's problems with the actual code. So whenever they see a problem, they have to diagnose it, figure out if it's something on their end, on the operational end, or if it's in the code. If it is in the code, they have to somehow give a reasonable reproduction to the developers. The developers try to fix it. And this whole kind of back and forth is a very slow, but even worse, right? Because we're all people, right? It, it gives a strain on the relationship, right? Because at the end of the day, it, it causes a lot of finger pointing, right? It's your fault. You didn't run it correctly. No, it's your fault. You didn't write the code correctly. And yeah, we have the whole get blame thing going on there. <laughs> Right, but, but, but it's even worse than Git blame, right? Because like, you know, some of these things aren't in Git, right? Some of these things are environment. So it's, it, it causes like, you know, kind of these, these flare-ups between, between teams and like it, it gets kind of very political and, and it's unpleasant on everybody, especially again, if you think of like, you know, like the classic organizational structure where the developers and operations might not even be in like the same group, right? So the kind of only shared management structure there is a CEO which clearly no one wants to bug with like you know like some, some small bug in like you know whatever like the, the web platform or whatever so um, it, 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 it mostly like it ends up with fights and who shouts the loudest and, and clearly this is not a great way to work no. the idea of DevOps is let's make like, let's make it one team right the, the developers and the operations people it, and, and this is very subtle because sometimes people approximate it to the developers run their own code and, and well, it's not a wrong way to do DevOps. That's not the only way to do DevOps. A, the main issue here is let's have the developers and the operations people be in the same team, work together. Um, and then I say a DevOps engineer is one who can, you know, build these kind of teams, right? One who um, understands enough of the development, enough of the operations, and they'll be a useful glue. Um, and this is why it's kind of like, uh, different things to different people because some people think of the develop of the uh, movement and the, of the philosophy, and some people think of the job description. And eventually, a lot of people who didn't do DevOps just said, "We want someone with that kind of skill set," even though we don't do proper DevOps, so we don't do DevOps all the way. But they still call it a DevOps engineer. But ultimately, um, DevOps is the idea that someone has to understand enough of the code and enough of the operations environment to make sure that they work together well and to be able to communicate between the uh, people working on different sides. So that was a very long answer, but I think this is partly why people don't, don't understand because they always expect the answer to be short. Well, sure, and, and I, I think a lot of times they they think that DevOps just is a synonym for QA. I actually thought uh, DevOps right. is a synonym for Docker. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and this, this is all, you know, part of it, right? Because Docker is in, in many ways a technology that, that is really built around the philosophy of DevOps, right? Because you take the code and you take kind of like, you know, the dependencies of the environment and you put them together in one big thing. And 
you cannot really use Docker correctly unless you have a DevOps organization because then you'll have some people building like the Docker thing and some people building the code and you don't gain anything at that point. You know, why not just use Ansible or Salt instead of that? So, um, and this is why like, you know, this is a confusion, right? Because there are tools that are optimized for a DevOps uh, um, oriented organization. Um, in general, these are good tools, but using DevOps, using these tools that don't make you DevOps and using DevOps that don't have to use these tools, but it's kind of a Conway's law, right? These tools are optimized for the kind of organizations that use Conway, and so there tend to be high correlation. Well, I mean, it makes me feel a little bit vindicated because I've been I, I've been doing basically that under a different name. I, I didn't dare to say DevOps because <laughs> I'm thinking I don't understand DevOps well enough to, re you know, you pull up the Wikipedia article and it's this long, dense kind of cerebral explanation. You're like, this just hurts. <laughs> It just hurts sure. my soul. So, uh, you know, I, I just kind of rolled with the idea that, okay, I don't really understand what DevOps is, except it has something to do with the code running and building and the whole team being able to function in that context. So I, I just let that go. But what I've been doing at, at my team, maybe you can tell me if I'm doing this wrong, um, is especially because uh, the team at, at Mousepaw Media, we, we, we're just, it's just interns, actually. It's an unusual company. And, um, we're kind of a springboard for, for people starting careers. And so we're all six hour a week interns with one exception being myself. And so what we wound up doing to answer this whole problem of, you know, DevOps and QA and all this other stuff is that everyone at some point or another is going to get experience in how the build system and the CI pipeline and all this works. But we have one volunteer at a time who serves at, as the repository master, and they're kind of the ones who have the, you know, the keys to go kick the tires on everything. They can push past um, the, the, qual the normal quality control systems in case something breaks. Um, but only one person at a time has those privileges, and that baton gets passed around depending on what people are working on and, and who's you know, feeling in the right place for it and who just wants to you know, not have to mess with the, the pipeline and, and get to do the code. And so we don't have a dedicated QA department. It is the developers, but we have, you know, that rotating role. And, and, and that's certainly one way to do DevOps. There's lots of ways to do DevOps, right? As long as you're like um, fighting against silos, then you are doing DevOps. And, and like I said, like the job of a DevOps engineer is to, you know, help make sure that, you know, all of this works. And sometimes it's help make sure by writing a good build system. And sometimes it's help make, make sure by saying, hey, let's have a meeting and talk about how we're doing that. And sometimes it's, um, hey, I'm going to organize a brown bag and teach you all um, a, a really important skill, right? So um, all, the, all these parts of a, are the parts of a DevOps engineer, right? So there's communication, there's uh, education, and there's actually, you know, like, like writing code or like the, the actual engineering work. And so, so DevOps engineer, at, at, at a lot of times, right, even though it sounds like it's all about computers and operating systems and, and figuring out performance or reliability issues, the main part of the job is about people, right? Like a DevOps engineer, the, the main focus is the people around them, right? The developer, the, you know, the... Um, the operations people, if you have dedicated operations, the QA, security, if you have dedicated people for that, right? Communicating with all these people and making sure that they're all coordinated, this is the most critical part of the job. So I, I always say, like, you, you have to be really good at, like, you know, understanding how operating systems work. But the most important skill set for DevOps engineer 
is people skills. They're not optional. They're like a critical part of the of the job description. Well, I mean, isn't that arguably true of all developers? Should be um, it, 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 it is, right? And like definitely like, you know, communication and people skills are, are always really important. But I feel like in DevOps, it's like really, really important because you have to communicate with a lot of people who are very different from you, right? In like their skill set and background and experience level. So having this kind of like very strong sympathy for other people, right? And, and I, I, I like to stress sympathy and not empathy. I don't think empathy is a good model. I don't need to feel what other people are feeling. And in many ways, I can't, right? If there's a junior engineer, the last time I was a junior engineer was 20 years ago. I don't think I can really understand how they think, right? Or, or like, you know, feel what they feel. I, I you know, I, I definitely have forgotten long ago how that confusion feels. But, but so if you count on your empathy skills, you, you're going to lose, right? What you need to count is on your sympathy skill, right? So it starts with believing people. Right? It starts with saying, you know, if they say, I don't understand it, the response should not be, how could you not understand it? This is super simple, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like, you know, relating to their emotions. It's caring about the emotion. It's caring about them, right? And, and I think this is, this is where I put the, um, this is like, you know, uh, um, my biggest soapbox, right? Because if you look at, like, you know, the internet, right, a lot of people who have thought about it will kind of keep talking about how DevOps people should have empathy, and I fundamentally disagree with that. DevOps people should not concentrate on empathy. They should concentrate on sympathy. Sympathy is how you solve these problems. Hmm. Uh, that's quite interesting. Usually, uh, when I talk with DevOps people, they say, oh, DevOps is easy because you only talk with uh, developers. You don't talk to actual humans. Because, uh, yeah. <laughs> well... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, but, but that, that, that's exactly the problem, right? Like, you know, expecting developers not to have feelings or emotions. It, like, there's so many ways it's bad, right? Uh, uh, um, and th- th- this may not be even the biggest problem, but, like, the obvious problem is, like, there's a toxic mas- masculinity involved in that, right? Which is, like... Um, developers should behave like, you know, quote, real men, and real men should never display emotions. That's bad for people of all genders, right? It's, you know, like, it's, it's not even just bad for women who are clearly, like, you know, impacted by that. It's not good for people who are perceived as male and, and have to keep their emotions under control. It's perfectly okay to be frustrated and even at the point of tears if you worked on something a long time and it, it crashes in a weird way that's frustrated you for two days. It's okay to, to have emotions, right? Like, it's not... A problem, and again, like that, that's why I, I express sympathy, right? To to understand that that person, you know, really has feelings, and until you, you know, you're on board with acknowledging their feelings, you won't be able to help them solve the technical problem. Then you're not going to be able to solve the technical problem. And of course, that that leads into my then asking, um, how does this? whole DevOps philosophy then tie into, you know, bug hunting. I mean, that's that's one of the, you know, one of the main things we chat about around here. And it's, you know, obviously this has a this has a, an effect when, you know, it's not just this one QA department, you know, locked in, you know, locked in a room with with a with a pizza and a, and a computer. Yeah. Trying to find the bug. Right. So, yeah. And, and, and so that it, you're right. Like this, like like part of breaking silos is figuring out how do we 
um, hands bags in a way that's better organizationally, right? And sometimes it means I'm gonna hands a bag myself because I feel like this is a complicated cross-cutting enough concern that I'll, I'm just gonna help find it. But ideally, that should be the last resort, right? Like you know, um, one step down from that is education, where I'm like. You know what? I'm gonna hand that bug myself, but I'll grab one of the developers who I feel should have the skills or is close enough to having the skills to hunt it, so they can look over my shoulders, you know, virtually if uh, we're remote or physically if we're close together, and show them how to do that. Right. So that's education. Right. So first, it's like you know, like like the the, the last fallback is engineering. I'm actually gonna find the bug. The second is education. Um, and, but even before that, maybe we can just make a process where bug hunting is not going to be unpleasant, right? So a DevOps engineer's job is to, you know, again, talk to the team and figure out a good monitoring strategy so when the problems happen, we have good details about them. It's to um, talk to the QA department and figure out what tests we can automate so they can run automatically so we can do, you know, all kinds of like, you know, um, uh, git by sections, right, or all kinds of fancy stuff like that, right? Um, it's to, um, you know, maybe talk to the QA department about doing chaos stuff because that often helps uh, uh, find bugs, right? So um, the first the first thing that, like, a good DevOps engineer would think about is how can I just make that problem easier in general? How, what, what kind of processes can I help put in place that will just make bug hunting easier? Um, and, and all of these things work together, right? Like after I find the bug, maybe the next one that's similar to that, I'll, I'll have one someone to kind of, you know, like uh, go along. But the first time I'm going in it, you know, it's maybe easier for me to kind of just not think about anything else, just finding the bug. Um, and after we find a few bugs like that and the team feels confident, we'll talk about how do we uh, improve the processes. So it's kind of going up and down the stack. But um, yes, bug hunting is a critical part of DevOps. But thinking of that in terms of DevOps requires not just thinking about the bugs, but again, about the organizational structure and the people involved. I, I can personally vouch for the benefit of, you know, debugging with someone who, you know, may be considered, you know, more junior than myself. I think some developers would be hesitant to do that because, well, I just want to find this bug and I don't want someone with less experience slowing me down. I find it usually speeds me up because um, uh, I've had I've had a few occasions where, you know, I had, you know, an intern that I was training and they're helping me debug. And of course, by that point, I'm code blind. I've been in the code for so long. I can't I can't see which way is up. And they come over and and we work through it. And I, you know, I might throw some suggestion out there. And actually, one of my interns caught me. A couple of months ago, I said, well, wait, wait, this fix you're going to do, you shouldn't do that because you don't even, you just said you don't know why you did did it this way. You had to have some reason to do it that way. Sure enough, he was right. I was fixing the wrong half of the problem, and I would have actually created an additional bug on top of the one that was there. Um, for crying out loud, my, my, my mother, who's also my business partner, she's not even a coder. And one day she walked in while I was debugging, and she looked over my shoulder and went, isn't that supposed to have a semicolon? <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. You just saved me uh, another two weeks. <laughs> uh, definitely. And also, like, you know, often, again, because you're debugging and you're improvising commands, you know, sometimes you make a mistake in writing the command and you get the, like, you know, data that you act on, but it's actually, like, you know, invalid data because you got it from the wrong place. And someone, you know, even if they're pretty junior, can say, hey, isn't that command supposed to, like, you know, 
look at that cluster, not this cluster. You're like, oh God, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, basing all my hypothesis on, on like data that is irrelevant to the problem. And, and, and that, that policy to against tilting. <laughs> yeah, oh, that definitely. Like, you know, because, because again, you're, you're stressed and often, you know, there's a time limit and, 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 and kind of a, um, a lot of pressure. So um, definitely sometimes, sometimes it's wor- worth working with people. Um, even when I don't work with someone, I'll often find a way to kind of um, put my stream of consciousness in a public place. Like it might be a Slack thread or it might be comments on a ticket. And then I say anyone who wants to look at it can just see my stream of consciousness. And then sometimes, you know, they'll like DM me on the Slack. Why? What are you doing? Stop, stop, stop. And usually when people say that, that's, that was a good idea to stop and think. <laughs> And I, I think, honestly, it is worth defining, though, because I, I, I've caught a, f- a phrase that we've used a couple of times in here that maybe isn't very well defined either, like we use DevOps as uh, silos. On, uh, so to, to, to avoid angering any, anybody in rural communities, we're not talking about tearing down your, your, your grain store. We're not? Is... No. Uh, no. We're, all, we're all big fans of grain. At least I'm a big fan of grain. Oh, yeah. Grain, grain is wonderful. <laughs> but it's it's all about not having, you know, this this hard separation where, you know, the people in this room and the people in that room don't even know each other, can't even, you know. Right. function as a, as a group they're two separate departments that are somehow supposed to be working on the same thing and that that can create a lot of problems yep yep no that, it's, it's good that you pointed out yeah I, I should have I should have also explained my terminology so so thank you for that yeah silos basically refer to the fact that you know just just like grain silos right like if you put you know different grains in different silos that's a good idea for the grain but that's a bad idea for people Right? So, so silos are great, great for grain, not a great model for how people communicate. So gr- great insight, number 275, people are not grain. That's, uh, and, and, you know, you know we, we, we kind of joke around about it, but, but it's, it's really important sometimes to understand that, like, you know, um, some things that we can think of, like, you know, uh, good or bad, they're very context dependent, right? I once, you know, like I, I had a, um, a talk about like how to think about tutorials. And I said that, well, of course, um, in some places, you know, we, we really want diversity, right? We really want uh, uh, gender and, and racial and ethnic diversity when we talk to people. Um, when you are giving a tutorial, you don't want experience diversity or specialty diversity because then you're not, you know, servicing everybody fairly, right? You'll, you'll end up focusing. So, you know, diversity, while well, generally we associate it with, with good stuff for good reasons, right? There are kinds of diversity that in some cases you don't want. Hmm. So, you know, like, like words, you know, are contextual, right? They, they have meaning, but they also have context. Hmm. I never look at it uh, that way, but uh, it makes quite a um, lot of sense. Well, yeah, uh, uh, when you give a tutorial in PyCon, unfortunately, this is like the, the most, um, well, unfortunately, in, in PyCon, you know, while there is diversity, and, and of course, they're working hard on improving that, um, you know, you don't get, you know, great uh, um, necessarily racial or ethnic diversity. You will get uh, a lot of uh, experience diversity, right? You'll have people who come in uh, as web, web front-end people and back-end people and, you know, 
more like, you know, uh, uh, SREs and data scientists, and they'll all come to the tutorial, and then you realize that you, you can't talk to them, right, in the same language, right? Different people understand things different ways, right? So, um, and, and this was one of my, like, when I gave a talk about how to give uh, tutorials at PyCon, I was pointing out this is one of the challenges that you'll have to think about how to overcome. Hi, Buck Hunters Cafe. Marta speaking. Absolutely. We're open 24-7 at bughunters.cafe. You can also find us on Twitter, Dev and Instagram as bughunterscafe. You're looking for who? I'm sorry, I don't see anyone who fits that description. If I see him, I'll tell him you're looking for him. Yes, you're welcome. Live a long and prosper to you too. Goodbye. Who was that? Someone asking if we've seen a cranky Scottish starship mechanic around. So we've talked a lot about uh, DevOps. Um, something else that you mentioned uh, you have experience with is SRE, which I'll admit is something else I know absolutely nothing about. I don't even know the definition of. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and I guess it's kind of weird because it also kind of like, you know, is a little bit like DevOps and there's like, sorry, different ways of thinking about it. Um, you know, it, it's just, just again, to make sure that we're clear, it, it stands for Site Reliability Engineering, just to kind of unpack the acronym. Um, and, and the idea was that, um, I guess, a lot of people felt like DevOps put a lot of uh, emphasis on the skills of operations. So the idea of Site Reliability Engineering is to have more or less the same kind of people doing the same kind of role, but with more stress on like the software engineering side rather than the operational side. So a lot of time SREs come from more traditional software development background, but they kind of specialize in a, in a different kind of engineering, which is maybe a bit more similar to DevOps. But the, the idea that these are people with like the full stack of software developer skills, right? You expect them to know a language really well, to understand you know, kind of like the basics of algorithms to understand unit tests, all of these things that sometimes um, people who come from more operational background um, take more time to catch up on. Um, and, and the reason like, you know, that started was because, again, this kind of started as like, a, um, I, I guess, you know, if you look at where it started, right, it, it's kind of uh, very telling. It started in Google. Uh, and the reason it started in Google was because Google is one of the first, you know, big famous uh, scaling stories, right? And as you scale, you have to scale out your operations. And the only way to scale out anything basically in this world is to automate it, which meant you needed people who thought about software development, but who specialized about software development that, that focuses on automating operations. And uh, um, that kind of like led to like the... Um, the idea of these are this is like a different engineering specialty. This is a site reliability engineer and not a software engineer. And, and in many ways, these two terms can be used um, uh, um, synonymously. And I, I think people who get too hung up on like the differences between them um, are, are just focusing on the wrong thing, right? What you need to focus is what kind of problems you're solving. And sometimes you need to concentrate on like the term if you're trying to hire people and you want to make sure that you... Um, get the right kind of resumes, but but ultimately, I, I feel like in practice, um, I've I've had positions which were um, identical 
you know, in like my, my day-to-day responsibilities, uh, which were called site reliability engineers, uh, um, DevOps, um, system engineers, and production engineers. Uh, and, 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 and honestly, like software engineer, right? Because some places just don't care. So your title isn't the thing that matters, right? Um, but, but there is a different uh, stress, maybe, when you think about site reliability engineering, that you start thinking in terms of more automating operations. And often that leads to, like, you know, like how to think about debugging, right? Like sometimes, again, if you're debugging something very in, in, in a scalable environment, you can just um, look at random uh, um, random log lines and kind of compare them, right? You might want to have to um, write a spe- specialized analysis code. Um, so I guess uh, one of my favorite stories about that was um, I had, we, we use uh, a caching tier that's pro- composed of like a bunch of memcache servers and a bunch of big routers uh, in front of them. Um, and that's a very typical caching, uh, caching tier. Um, it has a bunch of uh, good things about it. Um, but ideally, like at the client side, you kind of just uh, um, connect to um, routers uh, randomly. But um, that's not what we had at that point. Uh, what we had was that the client thought they were talking to memcaches, which meant they were uh, connecting to all the routers and trying to um, send the right key to the right router, even though it didn't matter. And that was okay. We knew that. And, and it didn't bother us too much. So we're downside, but we were like, we're going to fix it, but we're going to fix it later. It's not an urgent issue. Um, what did kind of like, you know, potentially was an urgent issue. We, we launched a new data center. And we knew that this data center had like potentially performance problems. So people really kind of uh, look tightly to see um, perf- potential performance issues. And we saw that one McRouter in the cluster was slow. And that was weird because like they should all get, you know, the same keys, right? Like the keys are hashed and they're hashed to all the servers. There's a bunch of them. There's not enough keys. Why, why did this one McRouter was slow, right? Is it getting like a super hot key or something? And like, but the hot key would make it faster. So um, we kind of really tried to dig into that. And there's enough McRouters and enough data there that you can't do it in your head. You can't just, you know, grab the metrics data and start computing that in your head. So what I did was I grabbed the metrics data, uh, pulled it into Jupyter and started to run analysis um, and kind of try to kind of like, you know, like dig into like, you know, which one it is and, and how much slow it is and when does it show slowness and does it show keys. And so I, I also grabbed like a sample of keys and tried to figure it out and like, because they had like you know all this like you know software development experience and could like you know write code that um, would um, would slice and dice the data. Eventually, what I found that like the reason it was slow was kind of an optical illusion. Um, so uh, um, really, <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's it's really weird. But yes, it it it, it was well. I, I guess I should say maybe a metrical illusion. Um, the way we counted slowness was we averaged the time it takes to. Um, um, to, to, to get a, a key. Uh, and that means that you can be slow if you just get uh, uh, slow keys. And the thing is that all the other McRouters had one hotkey. And that hotkey um, really kind of like, you know, uh, improved their average. And that McRouter, you know, it was handling less traffic. And it was actually like handling it, you know, really, f- you know, in some sense faster. But the average was slower because it didn't get like the, you know, artificial boost from handling uh, um, a super hot key. 
<laughs> so, you know, eventually, like, I was like, you know, here's the data. It's not a problem. And once we move to, like, uh, um, correct usage of McRouters, it won't be a problem at all. But it's not really a problem. It's just uh, um, an illusion in how we measure the data. And... <laughs> But, but, but it is, it was like really like, like the, these kind of illusions, unfortunately, are really, really common because often to get good measurements from like a high performance system, you take shortcuts in how you take these measurements because you don't want the measuring code to slow down like the, the real production code. So these kind of like uh, metrical illusions, if you will, are not as uncommon as one would hope for. Hmm. Well, and I, I find that interesting that you know, we hear, we were talking um, a while back, Boyan and I were ab about how you can put a $2,000 debugger in front of a, a developer and they're still going to use print statements. And so I, kind of a, funny how you're describing doing all this stuff with the metrics in the, in, in the, in the Jupyter notebook. And it just reminds me of the fact that it, it doesn't matter how sophisticated the tooling is, we're still ultimately going to go back to some form of a print statement, even if it's a print statement as part of a, the, you know, a, statistical analysis in the Jupyter Notebook. It's, we're ultimately going to go back to that. Sure. I, I agree. But if you look at, like, the alternative, right, the alternative is usually people will go into, like, say, something like Prometheus or any of these things and, like, start writing more and more complicated queries in these, like... Um, I don't want to say bad things about these languages because they're very well suited for what they do. But, you know, if you start writing a Prometheus query that's, like, three lines, give up. <laughs> you know, like, like it's, it's, you're clearly trying to abuse Prometheus. Just write a smaller query, grab the data via an API to Prometheus, and then munge it. You'll, you'll have a better experience, right? Because, you know, Python with, you know, Jupyter is a really good language. I, I call it, like, um, uh, small data uh, because it's not really big data, right? You're, you're talking about computers, right? If you have, you know, 100, you know, computers in a tier, that's a pretty big tier, but even if you have a hundred computers and you have like a thousand metrics for each and whatever, it's less than a million numbers. You know, Python does it without even bothering with NumPy pretty fast, right? It's, but but on the other hand, a human is of course you know like it's way way more than any human can 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 look and see. Sure. So um, so this kind of small data analysis in Jupyter is a really really cool uh, kind of um, secret weapon. Um, because, you know, people think of Jupyter as a data analysis tool and usually make it synonymous with big data. And, you know, we don't have the kind of data that Jupyter is good for. But, no, it's still good for that stuff, too. That's an interesting way to look at it, definitely. And, you know, we, we're, you know speaking of Python, um, you're, you're, one of the, uh, you're, you're one of the original Pythonistas, uh, one, one, one could say. Uh, yeah, I've been using it since 98, you know, back when um, Hido was still on a Python list. There was no even Python dev, right? Hido was just on Python list, and if you commented on something, uh, he, he, would, he would just answer. I remember one time I, I sent an email saying the person who wrote the uh, poly module uh, appeared to know neither polynomials nor Python, uh, and Hido's answer was, it was me. Uh, so I, I learned a lot about how to communicate with humans. Uh, <laughs> so since I was, I, I think I was like 19 at the time. So um, I, I guess you know you can forgive me a little bit. I, I was I was yeah. young and didn't know what I was doing. Inadvertently um, told we don't know he didn't know what he was doing. Yeah, um, but 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 and, and and to to be to be fair, the, the core thing was actually like the the technical critique was actually accurate. 
right? Um, the, you know, Hido didn't have a lot of experience in polynomials and this was like a finger exercise and it was just not using um, kind of properties of polynomials that would have made the code much more elegant and, and much more efficient. And um, at the time, like this was in Python 152, but this code was written in like uh, Python 0.9 and barely touched. Um, and that way it, it kind of also didn't look like it was really using uh, good, um, good Python skills. So like I, I had a core critique that was technically accurate, but definitely since then in like the more than 20 years, I have learned a lot about how to communicate these critiques in, in a way that's more amenable to uh, people actually addressing them. Yeah, the, the whole thing about, you know, less blame, more sympathy. And... Yep, yep, definitely. I noticed too that you 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 are one of the developers of something called um, Twisted, which some Python developers will recognize as being the, I guess you could almost say like the father or the grandfather of asynchrony in Python. Uh, yeah, and, and 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 like it's it's so funny because like in the in the old days we were like we would really love to communicate to like the core Python development team what kind of language feature would be useful, um, and while well, it took a few iterations. Uh, you know, eventually, like, you know, we got, like, you know, keywords like async await. And now you can use the keyword async await now in Twisted because um, they're just keywords in the language. They don't have anything to do with the um, async I.O. framework. So from the perspective of a Twisted uh, uh, developer, um, having async I.O. really made Twisted better because it puts the right sort of um, uh, pressures on the language to have the right uh, support for asynchronicity which Twisted could then take advantage of. So modern Twisted code actually also uses um, these keywords. Hmm, that's quite interesting. I, I think a lot of people don't uh, don't know that. And I think, you know, partly it's 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 our fault. We haven't communicated it well. Um, no, but, but on the other hand, part of it is like there was like this kind of meme of like, um, async I is a replacement for Twisted. And I think that's um, not a good model. Uh, to think of, um, ACKO still, you know, can't do some of the things that Twisted does well, which is even not a problem, right? Like Twisted A had more time to develop, and B, uh, because of how SCDlib in Python is tied to the Python version, we can iterate on Twisted much, much faster than um, ACKO can iterate. Because if we if we build like like a new feature into Twisted, people can use it right now. They don't have to upgrade to the next version of Python. If someone checks in a new feature to async IO, hey, you have to wait until like that version of Python is released, right? So I think Python 3.10 is already kind of in like semi-feature freeze, right? You wouldn't be able to even get it in. So you'd have to get into 3.11 and then wait until it's released. And then no one can, can use it unless they move the whole project into Python 3.11, which, you know, ideally people do fast, but in real life it takes time. On the other hand, the only thing that you need to do to use the latest version of Twisted is, you know, change one line in your requirements file. Um, so, you know, Twisted has this advantage, this inherent advantage over AsyncIO that it had more time to develop and it can iterate much faster. So there's a lot of things that it does that, you know, still you can't do for AsyncIO. One of, I guess, my um, pet peeves, because I actually had to go through that, um, because we used AsyncIO in, in something that, you know, didn't, you know, like it didn't make sense for me to come in and switch the whole thing to Twisted. Um, and I had to write a unit test. And wow. I haven't realized how much more fun it is to uh, write a unit test uh, for Twisted stuff than it is for... Um, 
than it is for um, for async IO because we built a lot of really really cool features for unit testing async code uh, in in Twisted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I recently started my first uh, Twisted project, uh, so I'm still uh, going around and figuring what is the best way to write uh, tests for asynchronous code uh, because up until now I've been mostly working with synchronous or using threads, but the synchronous code is a very new area to me. Uh, any advice? Yeah, um, yeah, which is basically, uh, in some sense, don't. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, it, um, but, uh, to, to make it more... Um, um, if you write your code with Twisted the right way, and, and by the right way I mean um, you have everything except a reactor, you don't use the global reactor, then you can use a custom reactor to make sure that even though it uses um, async, um, the outer layer just treats it as a deferred, and the deferred will, will, will have a value already because, um, because your reactor can be immediate. And then you can just, the unit test itself can just be a regular unit test, right? It needs to advance the reactor. Um, if you look at one, like some of the unit tests in Twisted itself uh, that use uh, clock, uh, twisted.internet.task.clack um, um, then you can see like like what I mean by having a fake reactor be a very powerful tool for um, for writing unit tests where the unit test itself doesn't have to understand anything about asynchronicity uh, you just use the fact that twisted can convert futures to deferreds uh, transparently and deferreds you can use from from sync code um, just by accessing um, by accessing them, assuming they already have the data. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's a quite good advice. I'm going to start using it. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> also, uh, how do you debug a synchronous code? Uh, in my experiences, uh, I was uh, every time I start doing debugging or try to isolate the code. Uh, what uh, happens quite often for me, since I don't have much experience, is that. Uh, I end up in a state where uh, one of the asynchronous sites is waiting for another to respond and another site was, is broken. So basically I have to kill the whole code. Yeah, I, I guess I don't use, use debuggers all that much. Uh, I usually use print statements and, and, you know, like sometimes the, um, you know, fancy print statements, write log statements. Uh, but um, honestly, like that's... Part of the reason why it's such a powerful technique is because you can just, you know, do that. Um, I, but I guess the other thing I will say is that um, uh, uh, Jupyter uh, uses async I.O. as its internal, um, internal loop. Um, Twisted has the async I.O. reactor. Um, and if you put everything together in exactly the right way, you can write small parts of your code inside Jupyter and kind of access the data in real time. Um, that's a pretty, um, if you want to see like an example of, I, 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 I'm not showing debugging at least, but I'm showing a lot of similar things. Um, I gave a talk in, um, Python webconf, uh, 2019, um, that's recorded. So I, we can put the link in the show notes where I show some of these, um, techniques, uh, for writing a web server. But honestly, like the real reason to use some of these techniques is, uh, you can, that put small parts of your code, run them in Jupyter, and then kind of interact with your code on a much deeper level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I think I think the whole idea of using Jupiter for for debugging is still still um still I don't know why that's such a novel thought to me, but I'm sitting here thinking that that's genius. Why did I not think of this before? Oh, um, so I, I guess I'm I'm kind of a Jupiter fanatic, to be very fair. I also wrote like a um, a series of articles about Jupiter that eventually got made into an an, an ebook, um, which. Um, covered all the way from using it as, uh, um, you know, we talked about Photoshop earlier, um, all the way from using it as, as a kind of alternative to like an image manipulator, because honestly, I don't know how to use any of these, right? Not just Photoshop, but, but you know, Glimpse or any of those. I, I, I'm just not good at it. Um, so I, I'm good at Python. So I, I use it as like, you know, my alternative to paint. Um, and, and like, I, I, you know, you can, you can write UIs in it, right? So I, I also use it to like... Uh, um, write my daily journal (laughs) it's 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 like such a powerful tool um that it has so many uses that that i I really think like you know yes it comes from data science obviously it's great for data science um but it can do so much more i also gave a talk in srecon about basically using it as your main incident uh resolution tool um and 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 partly because you know you have the notebook right so you have the list of what you've done and basically at that point um, for the prep to the retrospective, all you need is to add like, you know, kind of uh, cells with markdown that kind of like have the pros of like, you know, what happened and some context. And you already have the, the document that uh, you'll have for the, um, um, for, 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 for the retrospective, right? So um, like, like I said, I, I'm, I'm kind of a Jupyter fanatic. That's like usually the first tool I use for pretty much anything, right? I, I, you know, if I'm not sure, like, you know, like if I'm, I'm, you know, working on some application that I don't understand, um, I'll put like a Jupyter kernel in that virtual environment, open it up in my Jupyter, just call random functions with random arguments to just understand what's going on. So Python is like a super weapon, really. Like, uh, um, if, if you don't use it, then you're basically depriving yourself of almost a superpower. And I, I, I'm feeling really stupid now because, like, I, I just I just finished writing this whole this whole book called Dead Simple Python, and I, I talk about Jupyter uh, Notebook a little bit in there at the end, but I'm mainly focusing on just the core language. But the whole time while I'm writing this book, I keep going into the uh, into the shell, and I'll I, I tell you what, it's really hard to fix mistakes in an interactive session, and I'm I'm kicking myself because I worked on this book for three years, and I could have gone and done it in Jupyter. <laughs> and save myself hours of, of well, retyping. Maybe, maybe you should write like a kind of a, um, a sequel or like a um, you know, uh, you know, like 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 a, a little like you know like a fifty-page kind of uh, um, uh, um, how to use Jupiter for for all of these things, right? And you know, you can uh, yeah. But 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 like so, I, I wrote a book called uh, DevOps in Python, and one of the things I talked about was the um, different shells, but they really kind of talked a lot about uh, Jupiter. I, I really feel like people um, underestimate uh, what Jupiter is good for. So, I, like I said, I'm, I'm a Jupiter fanatic. I, I probably overuse it, but I think right now it's a better error to make to overuse it than to underuse yeah, it. Yeah, I'm definitely in that category of people who underuse it because I use it uh, mainly for data science projects and they're just for debugging uh, stuff and seeing, okay, this algorithm is working nicely for this solution. Uh, so I'm just going to write that into Python, and then I don't use uh, Jupyter at all. But your perspective on uh, power and all the possible usability of uh, Jupyter is completely a new way of looking at the things. 
uh, at least for me. I I wanted to ask you, um, what is the weirdest bug you have ever encountered? Oh, uh, <laughs> I can I can definitely talk to that because I think it also like it, it's kind of an interesting story um, relating to like what we talked earlier about like junior engineers and stuff uh, because that is a bug that um, I was handed. Ended up not like I'll kind of spoil the story by saying uh, I didn't reach the uh, end. I, I I never got to diagnose it and, and figure out what was going on and how to fix it. Uh, eventually, for all kinds of reasons, it was handed on to like um, one of a, a more junior engineer, and uh, she actually did a great job. And I was really interested to see her um, final stuff. So the um, you know the symptom is the Python process doesn't shut down, right? It calls sys.exit, and for some reason it stays up. And we tried everything we could think of. We, we kind of had the process send kill nine to itself, and that didn't help. And we were like really, really frustrated. And I, I had no idea what I was going on. And eventually I moved on to another project. And she figured out that the problem was that we were using um, both multiprocessing and multi-threading. And some of the threads were not, um, were not daemon threads. So... Um, the other processes that kind of scratch spun off from the multiprocessing had kind of threads they didn't have anything to do with um, because when you spawn a process, it also spawns all the threads from it. Um, and some of those threads uh, were not demons, so um, they were still doing their thing, but, you know, we didn't no need them to do any of this thing, but uh, they still kept, kept the process running because it had a non-demon thread. So that was definitely, like, um, kind of like this kind of weird, like, um, I, I think the bottom line is never use multiprocessing and multithreading in the same code. Honestly, it wasn't justified. Um, you know, I, I was I was kind of thrown into that project. But if you do end up using it, uh, be aware there's a lot of weird corner cases to handle. Zombies. <laughs> it's well, it's worse than zombies, right? It wasn't a zombie process. It 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 was a you know from the perspective of the Linux kernel, it was a live process. So it was alive and yet really should be so 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 it was it was a, it was a lich is that even a lich leech um, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure you know like like the technical term for that um, if well you it's have not a even process... a technical term it's from it's from fiction L I C H and I'm sitting here oh, you know yeah. on and I can't uh, even I can't yeah, even it's... figure out how to pronounce it my my yeah. best friend's gonna be so so he's just gonna be oh, shaking yeah, I, his I, head with his hand I, over I, his face I did play uh, I did play D and D like a few million years ago but uh, I think it's probably each. Um, anyway, uh, now that I know the concept, yes, it, it, it's like this really weird thing, right? That like, you know, it's kind of not supposed to happen, but of course, um, everything happens. <laughs> uh, eventually, right, if you if you do weird enough things with code. So yes, it was like this weird, like it's, it's not even zombie, right? Because at least zombie shows up in PS as a Z, and then you can figure out why it's not being ripped properly. This just shows up as a live process. You do PS, it seems cool. You try to kill it, it doesn't die. <laughs> Yeah. It's kind of like this kind of weird immortal uh, uh, thing. So it's an asshole. It's, it's an asshole, basically. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe a vampire, right? Can only be <laughs> killed with like a stake to the heart and chop off its head. I know. Yes, you can. You can use all kind of. Uh, um, I, I guess, but but the Nazgul is good because um, the only person who managed to solve it could actually say that uh, she is no man. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, and I'd be worried about vampire processes anyway, because the only way to solve it, you just see the you know the SRE going into the into the server room with a wooden stake and a hammer. Like, um, is yeah. this going to have some permanent you know 
repercussions to our infrastructure, it's worth it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, if I'm getting this correctly, if I want to have uh, code that is persistently running and not to be disturbed at all, I should use multiprocessing and multi-threading at the same time, right? It's weird because it's not going to run properly either. Because <laughs> um, the main process is not going to actually do anything and the threads might, like... I, I I wouldn't use it as a feature, is what I'm saying. Well, uh, <laughs> but what if my code is the nicest code of them all, and I don't want anybody to interrupt it? <laughs> yeah, you know, this, this is like a lot of uh, like the the theme from Lord of the Rings, <laughs> where um, uh, um, Galadriel is talking about maybe she she she's not gonna take the one wing. Um, you know, even if your code is is very nice. Uh, eventually, that's like using the one wig. Eventually, um, all will fear it. <laughs> one does not simply use multi-threading and multi-processing together. Indeed. <laughs> I, I think we kind of ran the game with of, of like the entire like you know kind of uh, obscure nerdy references in this uh, uh, in, in the description of this bug. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, in this, this the course of this conversation, we have we have spanned just about anything. So, I'll just I'll, I'll close it out. Let you know with the with the last with with the last missing reference would just be "May the Force be with you," because um, we haven't mentioned Star Wars yet. And uh, um, uh, Moshe, it was it was great uh, great talking with you. And uh, thanks for meeting us here for you know some coffee or tea in your case. It was it was definitely uh, my pleasure. Great tea and and great conversation. Hope to see you soon in future. Yep, definitely. Oh, and uh, my my rides over there. If we wanted to go check out that Yay, museum. free ride and free museum. Yeah. <laughs> definitely, absolutely. I look it's a bit. To you there. Yeah, it's uh, it's um the the clo- you, We can all we can go all go by a closet. It oh, is bigger on the inside. Sounds good. <laughs> Hi, Buck Hunters Cafe. Marta speaking. We are located online at buckhunters.cafe and on Twitter, Dev, and Instagram as Buckhunters Cafe. Our galactic coordinates? I'm not sure. What are galactic coordinates? I have no idea. The unicorn won't tell me. I'm sorry, we're not sure. Folks usually arrive via portal. The music? That's provided by audionautics.com. We have a link on our website. No, we don't know their galactic coordinates either. No problem. Goodbye. <laughs>